I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. I am your host, Andy Johnson. We've got a great show today. I'm excited about it, actually. Um, we had Gary Young. He's one of the PGA Tour's chief referees on to talk all things PGA Tour setup. That's me and Joseph Lamagna talking uh, with Gary. It was enlightening. There was a lot of stuff I learned uh, from it about how they're, they they go about setting up a golf course for a PGA Tour event. Um, and then we talked about some of the hot topics, uh, TIO, pace of play, preferred lies, all sorts of stuff. Um, so it was really it was a fun chat with Gary. Uh, I appreciate him coming on and, you know, answering, answering questions, answering questions that an idiot like me has um, about what he does for his, uh, for his job. But uh, before we get to that, we got to do in and out. Joseph. What are you in on this week? Andy, I am in on signature events with a cut. This week at the Genesis Invitational, we're going to see the first signature event, the PGA Tour's new model with a limited field and a cut. So field of about 80 players, they're going to cut down to the top 50 in ties after two days. I think that is a wonderful recipe for the modern golf product and i would love to see more of these signature events limited fields that don't have a cut implement a cut i think it adds something it's additive it introduces some competitiveness to the event and makes it not feel like a wgc where guys are climbing from t61 to t48 on sunday that that really don't need to be on the golf course so i think people are really gonna like that cut line this week at riviera and it's uh something i'm excited about i think the signature events should have a cut line so that's what i'm in on i i almost went with this also this was almost what i was in on but i completely agree the other thing the other advantage we're seeing it this week as the waste management is barreling into the super bowl is it as we record this segment of this podcast, it is it is on. I thought this was going to be over. I thought we were going to be done with this. But, you know, when you have a big field and, and 80 players on a weekend is a big field. That's what they cut to on the PGA Tour. They cut actually often to less than 80 players. So these signature events often feature more players on the weekend than a regular yeah. event. So cutting it down to 50, it gives you a lot of flexibility. You can withstand a weather delay. You can um, move tee times around easier. You know, one of the things that makes the product way better, and Gary touched on this, is tee time spacing and number of players. So if you could go to twosomes and space it out 12 minutes, it makes the pace of play the product better. This is a big, I I completely agree. Um, One thing I'm in on. And this is reactive to yesterday's telecast. It's just trying new things with the telecast. Um, I thought that Kisner and Smiley on 16 were wonderful. It was just like a nice, different thing. Um, and I think the key to this is not being locked in. And, cont- and, and like they're going to look at this and be like, we can do this 
all over the place. Like we should do this everywhere. And it's that's not the takeaway here. The key here is that this worked really well at this event because it fit this event. Like the whole atmosphere of 16 lends itself so well to that, that little broadcast snippet. Um, like them sitting there talking it through, talking about the atmosphere, all the things that went into that. It works so well right there. The key to this idea is finding something like that at every event across the board. And it's not always going to be the same thing. So that that style might work well a few other places on the PGA Tour where there's holes that have a similar atmosphere or stakes, uh, you know, that that tie to it. The, the other key is finding different formats of that type of idea, like a different broadcast, different formats of it that fit, you know, another specific event at Riviera. Maybe it's people sitting and talking about 10 or another hole, right? Just change it up, try new stuff. But I loved the initiative to try something new. I I agree with you, Andy, Uh, not to be negative. I think they, there was a little sacrifice on some of the shots from the players in contention. So I had a little bit of a problem with that on Saturday night, but Smiley and Kevin Kisner themselves were great. And I loved that feed and seeing, all those shots on 16. So I think there's a balance there. Like also need to show the shots from the players in contention, but I I totally agree with you that that was, that was a great feed. I think it was a unique situation also. I mean, like Saturday of that event's always going to be about 16, but there's also the unique situation of like the weather delays, right? What are you out on? Uh, this is going to be an old person yelling at cloud take Andy, but you're not even old. I know that's, what's crazy about it, but I am out on celebrating drunkenness specifically at the waste management Phoenix open these, these videos of people like falling over drunk on the cart path. I think this year's Phoenix open got a little out of control. And when you kind of, the brand of the Phoenix Open, I think they do a lot of things right. It's one of my favorite events of the year. But the more that the rowdiness is celebrated, I think it attracts a certain type of person. And things maybe got a little bit out of control this year. I love a lot about the Phoenix Open. I've been, I was drinking. I'm all for it. But I think some of the like the viral clips of people peeing on themselves and stuff, maybe if we cut back on some of that, we won't have as many fans yelling at players and taken away from some of the event. So that, that I'm out on that. What do you think about that, Andy? I've thought about this a lot, and I just think this is just, in general, the natural pro- progression of the way these things work, right? Um, is that you get an identity... Everybody finds out how cool it is, and it's super fun. It's a party atmosphere. It's unique to the tour, and the tour leaned into it, and I don't have like a problem with them leaning into it, um, but this is the natural progression of how these things work. Uh, I went to the University of Illinois. It's known for its unofficial St. Patrick's Day party. Um, it, it was a big deal when I was there. Um, I think it's still a big deal now. But it was like this day. It was a Friday. Everybody just got wasted. And it, you know, listen, I partaked. I enjoyed it. But every year you're there, it gets a little bit worse because you get more and more people come from in from out of town. More, It becomes less and less of a homegrown type event. And I think that's one of the things that happens here is like with this, with the, with waste management, it's just evolved into this. And 
And what it is is that people come in from all over the country to party and celebrate. And it's less about like this is Phoenix's event, right? It's people that come in there. It's their expectation. They treat it like a bachelor party day. And, you know, this is just the natural progression that's going to happen. And it happens with all sorts of things. It happens with golf course design where, you know, once you say, oh, we're going to start, you know, narrowing fairways and growing rough, like one course does it, one course does it a little bit more, one course does a little bit more. This is the way society works. So I don't know where you go from here if you're the waste management. It clearly did. I I had some friends that were uh, on site, had an awesome time, but they they were like, you know, they cut off alcohol sales. The, I talked to, one of them talked to a police officer that said that like 130 people were taken out on stretchers. Um, I don't know how you rein this back in because the PGA Tour has leaned so far into what it is that it seems very hard. I don't know what to do. I'm glad I don't have to decide this. But yes, this is just what happens to things that are deemed cool is that this is they get they spiral out of control. That was a long winded answer. No, look, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of things about it are great, right? Like even having a party identity is fine, but I, I think it's gotten a little out of control and I agree with you. I don't know exactly what you do to rein it back in, but all right, Andy, what are you out on? Uh, I, you know, I so respect low scores. <laughs> I love them, but I just am going to say that the, the, the number, the scores in the fifties, no longer has the same cachet that it used to. We saw a 57 from Cristobal Del Soler on uh, the Corn Ferry Tour this week. We've just seen, you know, like this year has been low score after low score after low score. Obviously, Joaquin Neiman shot 59 the week before on Live Tour. Um, You know, 60s, we saw 60 from Wyndham Clark at Pebble Beach. It's just not it's it's like, say, you know, I, I would use this to to like these are major league baseball records that are being broken on, on a little league field. You know, Soler, I don't think he had hit much more than a wedge into any hole. You know, the 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 I guess the the ability for golf courses to defend themselves against the modern player are at an all time low Um you know, some equipment modifications and, and rollback are coming. I don't really think it's going to do much of anything. This might be just the new era. And and I'm just out on it being a huge deal because I just think it is it is what it is um, in today's era of golf. Your thoughts? I agree with you, Andy. Uh, the Corn Ferry Tour ones were a bit of a special circumstance because it was a short golf course at altitude. But a score is just a number on a card at this point. Getting put on 59 watch, that used to be rare and pretty fun. And now it means basically nothing. Like, I, I don't get excited by it anymore. I think the baseball analogy is appropriate. Also, NBA players scoring 50. Like, we've seen a huge increase in that this year to where it's no longer as noteworthy when somebody puts up 50 points. So, uh, yeah, scoring's all relative. I don't get excited by it either. But I think especially this year, you're going to see a lot of low scores. Like, it, I think we're in for over the next year or two, some really low scores until there's a rollback. And I agree with you that even once, once the rollback happens, it's not going to have that significant of an impact. So I'm with you. I'm out on that too. All right, let's get to Gary Young. But first, let's talk about our friends from the USGA um, and the, the USGA greed section, which has been helping golf facilities provide better playing conditions for over 100 years. 
When you schedule a course consulting visit with a USGA agronomist, you'll get more than just an expert in agronomy. You'll get a trusted partner who's familiar with your region and your course conditions. USGA agronomists can help you formulate a plan to communicate to your course leadership, staff, and golfers, and they can also help you plan and prioritize your resources more effectively. USGA consultants uh, can provide an unbiased assessment of your course maintenance and renovation needs so you can assure you're getting the trusted advice you need to make key maintenance decisions. Book a course consulting visit by March 31st and you'll receive $500 off your first visit. That's not an inconsequential amount of money. Um, So that's $500 off your first visit. And for more information on how to schedule a visit, go to usga.org slash green section dash ccs that's usga.org slash green section dash ccs all right thanks to the usga and let's get to gary young all right gary uh thank you for coming on uh i would love to hear about how someone becomes a a rules official how do you become the head referee for a pga tour event how does that even come about how does your life take you here yeah it's probably probably well first of all thanks for having me on um it's probably the most common question that we get asked uh by by fans that are walking by and see the rules official sticker on the front of the golf cart. They're always like, how'd you, how do you become one of those? That sounds like something I'm interested in. I said, yeah, it looks like fun right now, but it has its moments. Um, you know, everyone on our team comes from various backgrounds. Um, number one, most of us have either worked, have either been golf professionals at some point in the past whether we were PGA of America members, a couple members of our team were actually members of the PGA Tour who um, later in their career decided to pursue uh, being a rules official, which is really, I think that's important. It's always great to have a player's point of view on our committee. Um, to someone like uh, Mark Dusbabic, who does our television rules analyst role, And Mark was actually a middle linebacker for the Minnesota Vikings. How about that? (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's something that just post-football career, he really dedicated himself. He got involved in uh, state and uh, section um, associations, got a lot of experience in administration of golf, uh, got educated on the rules, long, extensive education on the rules, and uh, eventually was hired later by um, by Mark Russell. So, um, you know, we have a very varied backgrounds that everyone comes from. I think that's what makes us special. Do you guys, is there uh, like a test? You know, financial advisors have to take a Series 7. Is there is there a, uh, is there some sort of test that you have to study for and then upkeep at, at certain times? Like, I, I'm just, I, I, that's something I've always wondered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yes, we all started out by having to score very well on the USGA, PGA of America. They do a joint rules workshop. You attend a workshop for about a week. It's a very extensive dive into the rules of golf and how to interpret the rules of golf. And then you take a hundred question exam and have to score exceptionally well on that to be considered 
Um, so, and then also you, it's just continually like any other profession, the continuing education. And we are constantly doing a deep dive into the rules of golf as they happen um, across all the the major tours. We we share with one another rulings that we have. We talk about them in depth so that we have a better understanding of everything. Do you have a favorite obscure rule or ruling? <laughs> like, is, is there one that that sticks out? Like that, that's literally exactly what I was going to re- ask, Andy. Uh, I remember I, I, reading I, I, about the. Uh, if you have a golf ball in your pocket and you mark your ball and you put it, the ball that you just marked in your pocket and they're marked the exact same way, Gary, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're not sure which one you were using, I believe that is a lost ball. And that was, <laughs> I think that comes more into play when we have a ball in play, right? Right. And, you- and we hit one and we haven't marked it and we get out there and maybe we hit a provisional that's the same exact ball same exact marking yeah that would be a situation where if you truly could not tell which one was the first one in play you know that particular that first one is deemed to be lost and yeah so it's always a good idea to mark your golf balls differently for sure would you then have to hit a third tee shot if say you hit a provisional no in that situation uh i'm trying to remember the exact interpretation on that one but i believe uh the second the second ball would become the ball in play but if you can't if, if you, you don't know tell, either one you'd right? be hitting your if you couldn't be hit couldn't tell either or um you know you would be hitting your fourth shot now from from the fairway <laughs> yeah. yeah i think i remember reading so. it within the context of marking your ball on the green and like putting it in your pocket and then you're not sure because you have two balls in your pocket and that was just a, a crazy situation that probably doesn't come up do you have a personal favorite yeah. obscure one no, I really don't. I really don't. They they are all they all have their challenges at times. So um, that's why we have a committee. And uh, you know, when you're out there and you get in a situation like that one you just threw at me, I mean, you know, it's so weird. It's so unusual for something like that to happen. I would throw that out to the entire committee for everyone's feedback to make sure that we get the call right. And as a matter of fact, I would say, okay, guys, before I close this out, this ruling, is there anyone else that's thinking differently than what we've just heard? Because oftentimes there's someone sitting there really thinking about it, and there's some small little thing that the committee's not thinking about. So we have had situations like that, and that's why it's important that there are eight of us, nine of us there at the course. Um, We truly act as a committee on things. What, Gary, when we when we refer to PGA Tour setup, who all would that entail? That that's a big question I have. Like, who all is coordinating maintenance um, with respect to c- how long the grass should be, green speeds? Can you can you explain who all within the PGA Tour orbit that term would encompass? Yeah. So so when we talk about setup, we're talking about two different things. There is the agronomic setup of the golf course so that would be green speeds height of cut in all of the different areas of the golf course um and then and then there's the other portion of setup which is handled that week of the competition and i can talk a little bit about both so the first part the agronomic setup that's really something that is 
set up by the chief referee and the advanced rules official for each event. So we have a person that travels to the golf course a week in advance. And his or her job is to prepare the golf course for competition. They work with our agronomist and the local um, superintendent or director of agronomy at a facility. And they make sure that everything that we have, uh, you know, from years of experience playing at a venue, we know what optimal conditions are for that particular venue. Maybe the height of cut at three inches is perfect for that golf course, given the grass type. Maybe at another place, it might be two inches because it's Bermuda grass. And, um, you know, each type of grass represents a different issue at different heights of cut. Uh, Same thing with height of fairway, speed of greens. It really depends upon the architecture of the golf course. You know, last week at Pebble Beach, that's a really challenging set of greens to find quality hole locations once the greens get above a certain speed. Um, we knew we had big winds coming in last week. So we actually backed off the green speeds. Our target speed was between 11 and a half and 12. We actually backed it off closer to just below 11, which now allows us to go into some more slopier areas. Um, but again, we were trying to get high and dry. We were trying to put the whole locations up where moisture wouldn't shut us down and we could keep playing golf. So that was the bonus of, of being at lower green speeds. Everyone always thinks, oh, fast green speeds, that's the challenge. Not really. You know, if you want to go to some of these really quality hole locations on an old golf course, we need those green speeds to be lower. Is that um, is that a tough conversation? Just I, I, you know, you hear PGA Tour players talk about when they go to the say the Open Championship, and and they say always talk about oh the greens are slower than I'm used to. There's a a a, a period. Is it is it hard to um, have a little bit slower greens when you have like I'm thinking in my head Sedgefield is a great example where the greens yeah. have is an old golf course. It's a Donald Ross design that has a lot of slope and it's one of the, one of the places I feel like you see four footers with the most break you'd, you'd see anywhere on tour. Is it, is it a, um, a hard um, thing to accomplish with players uh, that are used to X speed? Well, it's an interesting comment because we don't try, we're, we are definitely not a cookie cutter tour, meaning we're not looking to be 12 every week. We're not looking to be, you know, three inch height of rough. It really is driven by the architecture of the golf course. Uh, You mentioned Sedgefield. That's a great example of a very challenging set of greens. And we just know historically, if we we have the green speeds too high, we can really lose quality hole locations, ones that are going to challenge the player on their approach shot to the green. Um, and so almost like when we become too fast on a set of greens, we tend to have to go towards the middle of the green with the hole locations and you don't get the variation in hole locations you're looking for. So, you know, you mentioned the Open Championship that they do a great job with their golf course setup and some of the most challenging hole locations. I'm always, you know, when I'm walking with a group at the Open Championship, I'm always looking at whole location saying, wow, I mean, if we tried that on the PGA Tour, but 
their green speeds are such that they can go to those places. So, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think your original question, do players, um, do they mind it? Yeah. I mean, they have to make adjustments to, you know, their stroke for sure. You know, sometimes if it's a little, little on the slower side, you have to pop it a little bit more than than just that normal flowing stroke that they have kind of week in and week out. So I think it's tougher to use the aim point that way. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're talking about the agronomics part of the setup, and then you'd mentioned there being the other piece of, of the setup. Maybe if you can elaborate that on that. And, and one question I had is, what is the PGA Tour's goal with setup? And in your opinion, what are the ingredients of a proper pga tour test so uh maybe if you want to take those questions in whatever order you you see fit the the goal of any pga tour event any day is to try to set up the most difficult course we can yet fair difficult yet fair we're trying to challenge the best players in the world um you see some events where the numbers are are high you know like it's uh you know high meaning under par um seems like the guys are shooting lights out there well certain venues just you know they don't have maybe the challenge of some of something like a a tory pines or uh, a pebble beach or other places where you can kind of ratchet things down a little bit by by having tougher hole locations um so our goal every day is difficult yet fair given the day's conditions so we have two setup guys each week or uh, uh, we also have women so I shouldn't just say guys but we have two setup people each week and um, their job is to communicate with one another on how they're setting up their nine each day one's doing the front one's doing the back they want to make sure they have four different clubs in the players hands on par threes usually a golf course has four of them so we're looking for variety variety in the hole location and shot shape We're also looking for variety in the yardage. So the goal is to have four different clubs in their hands. Um, And then throughout the golf course, just balance between right right hand, left hand hole locations, front, middle, back. Um, You're looking at it so that when the player looks at a hole location sheet, they see nice balance. And it almost looks like one person is setting up the golf course rather than two distinct ones. And that's something that we work hard at is, uh, you know, working with the staff and, and they do a great job already. We have a really terrific staff and um, they understand golf and they, uh, they've been doing it a long time. So they know how to set up a challenging course, but really looking for that balance so that it doesn't appear that it's two distinct people setting it up. I'm sure I could ask you a million questions on pin locations alone. Um, one, yeah. one that maybe a couple parts to this question, but something I always think about how the golf course plays in the morning versus how it plays when it gets a little firmer in the afternoon and uh, how wind interacts with that. So can you maybe talk a little bit about some of those considerations? And for example, are you trying to get similar difficulty on Thursday and Friday because you have players play one morning one afternoon and maybe how you change that over the course of the four days so again a few questions that i just threw at you but i'm very interested in how that impacts pin locations and what you're trying to accomplish no those are really good questions um 
you know, you are trying to keep the golf course a little more balanced for sure on Thursday and Friday. Each player is going to have a chance to play in the morning and the afternoon wave. And um, you hope to keep the conditions as similar as possible. Um, you look, you're looking to strike that balance because weather oftentimes doesn't allow that. So you're factoring that into your decision making. And you're always setting up for the worst conditions that are going to be faced. So what might appear to be an easy setup in the morning for the guys playing in the morning, you're really trying to keep it fair for the guys in the afternoon who are going to face maybe high winds or a driving rain or something like that. So you're always thinking about equity. And, and that's what is the most important function of a rules committee is to keep the, the event as equitable as possible, the competition equitable. Um, and then again, you know, there's some places that are just a challenge. You know, we go to places with high altitude. I can always remember we used to play out in Reno, and the golf course we played there, we had to really uh, water the heck out of it overnight. And the guys would always complain about how, how damp it was in the morning and yet in the afternoon, it was rock hard. And it was like, well, if we don't get it damp in the morning, guess what? It's going to be dead by the afternoon. It's, it's going to look like all these mountains around us where there's no, no vegetation. We are in the middle of uh, an, an arid area where moisture is needed. So you're always trying to strike that balance. You, you don't want it to be uh, too soft for the guys in the morning, but you got to give it enough moisture to get it through the day. Over your time at the PGA Tour, how would you say that setup has evolved, both from the aspect of player evolution, they're hitting it further, but also from an agronomic standpoint, um, never has agronomy been better, never have we been able to push courses to the same um, uh, standard as we, as we can today? Yeah, I think you're hitting on a good point there because distance is something that we hear about all the time. And... Um, Although I don't disagree, people are hitting it a little bit further each year, and we we see that uh, the athletes are getting bigger and stronger every year. the The ability for them to to tune fine tune their equipment is getting better and better with the use of uh, TrackMan data. Um, so they're optimizing everything about their equipment. But going to the agronomic side. There's no doubt that uh, our agronomy team for sure has gotten better and better at pro providing just outstanding conditions. And that has an impact on distance as well. No, no doubt about it. We've been mowing fairways at lower tolerances for sure. Um, constantly asking courses to dry it down because our players want firm, fast conditions. And that's what we try to provide each week. So that has a big uh, that has a lot to do with the distance debate is part of it is the data that's coming from our tour is being driven by just superior conditions week in and week out. I guarantee it last week that sopping wet mess we played in the distance was not a big factor cuz balls were hitting and stopping right there. So that would be a week that would skew the numbers uh severely. In terms of your your stance, you were just kind of talking about tests early on. Um, what what do you see from your chair on the best way to test the modern PGA Tour player? 
probably the best way is to have a challenging set of greens. This is just my take on it from watching mm-hmm. yeah, it play out. Um, it's all about, I think, architecture where water is able to leave the green. It doesn't doesn't kind of, you know, shots that hit close to the green tend to get repelled away from the green if they're not precise, um, rather than architecture that almost rewards a shot that's maybe hit just a little more offline, hits something and ricochets back onto the green. So if I were designing a course to challenge the best players right now, I, it would all be about precision on iron shots into the green. And then, of, of course, a nice challenging set of greens that that doesn't have severe slopes, but just subtle, subtle features that are very difficult for the player to read. And um, I think we noticed, I noticed that our players love the older courses as opposed to some of the modern courses. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of the most classic designs that you think of. Probably some of your favorite courses were built in a period when uh, most of those courses were built by hand, by horse and plow and labor, you know, manual labor with rakes. And they get all those fine little details that you really have to search for with your eye. It's not so obvious as, you know, nowadays with some of the larger dozers and things like that that they use. It's, um, I think there are certain architects in the modern era that, that tend to uh, be able to provide that same type feel that I'm talking about, some of the classic courses. I, I agree. Like there is a thing where when you're not sure, it seems like it's hard when the guys struggle the most when they can't really tell which way a putt breaks. Right. Yes. And they think it might be on the right edge and then it moves just a fraction to the right instead. And that's what kind of flummoxes them. It gets them. It gets it's that Pete's eye quote. It gets them thinking. Right. You win when right. you get them thinking. Um, from your perspective, and obviously this is all opinion. Do you think the older courses because of history also get away with a little bit more severity in features because that's the way it's always been versus when you go to say a newer venue or a course that's been renovated and something new's introduced that's different from what it used to be. Uh, I think you're, you're hitting on a good one there. You know, if you uh, show up at the U S open and it's being played at wing foot where that can have some crazy features, right? Yeah. Those greens, did, I feel like those greens wouldn't work at like uh, TPC Scottsdale. No, I think if, if someone showed up and someone had just designed that golf course or that set of greens complexes, the players would probably be, you know, saying some nasty things about it. But um, yeah, you do tend to just accept some of the older architecture. And I think that the guys understand that, you know, those greens were designed when the golf ball, well, just wasn't rolling at the speeds that that we have greens rolling at now. So there is a balance there. Um, And again, you know, I think the USGA does a great job. They do a great job setting up the US Open each year. I think we enjoy, you know, the challenge they present. And um, they've been nice enough to have us there uh, with them, um, just asking questions as they're as they're setting up but they do an outstanding job presenting a good challenge 
Well, while we're here, I, you know, one, the, the course, the, what you were discuss, discussing about uh, testing the world's best, it sounded a lot like Pinehurst number two, greens that repel with kind of subtle slopes in them. But yeah. while we're on the major championship setup I, it, stuff, I, you know, you, you attend majors, you are, you work majors. How do you kind of look when you look at, take a step back and look at those setups versus the PGA tour setups? How do you think they differ? How do you think they're similar? Um, I just I'd be curious on your perspective of majors versus the setups that you guys do as your uh, for your organization. I, I think first and foremost, it starts with the ability to nail down some of the some of the most iconic venues, you know. And um, when you are bringing a major championship to some of the most iconic venues in our country. Uh, sometimes they're willing to host those events. Um, you know, obviously they're more open to it. So it starts with the quality and of the architecture. And that is one thing it seems like they, they get right every year. Um, and then the ability to create a firm, fast condition. So this year at Pinehurst, it should, you know, everything tells you that that place should at that time of year be pay, playing firm and fast and has the architectural value to really challenge the best players in the world. Now, um, I think another venue that they played recently, a U.S. Open, was the Country Club in Brookline. And everyone was wondering, well, wh what's that going to be like? You know, and, and I had no doubt in my mind it was still going to present a serious challenge because it had some real strength in that those greens complexes. And I knew they was going to challenge the guys and they were not going to have the memory recall because not many of them have played there. And um, it stood up to be a terrific challenge, but a lot of it was they, you know, the USGA did a great job setting that place up that week. And um, th they had us there and they asked a lot of questions and I respect them for that because we're with the players week in and week out. And the fact that they even asked our opinion, you know, we're flattered by that and we're proud to be part of our, our national championship. Um, we probably have uh, more input at the U S open with them than, than any other major, which, um, you know, but I respect all of the organizations that run them, and I think they do a great job presenting a a really tough challenge. I mean, it, sometimes it can have our players scratching their heads, but you know what? It it always it's fair. It's not it's not across the line. They do a good job of keeping things in check now. So. I, I imagine you kind of look at them and think, oh, how nice it must be to be able to like really focus in on one event for you know for a long period of time but on the flip side they look at you guys and it's like god it must be nice to do this every week like you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah yeah um i don't think that we can push things sometimes as hard as they do um they're not going to be they're not going to be facing the players week in and week out um <laughs> there's no doubt about it but uh yeah, that is a luxury. I wish I had that luxury of just doing it once a year. And But they uh, they all do a good job. Kerry Haig from the PGA of America does an outstanding job every year. And, you know, you would think that I would hear criticism, but never do. I mean, he just does a great job. 
Gary, going back to one of your answers from a couple questions ago about what an ideal test is and when you hit a shot that's not perfectly struck, it repels away. I think you're not to put words in your mouth, but kind of getting at the relationship between hitting a shot online and experiencing a consequence. And and with that, I think a hot topic always on social media that I'd love to get your perspective on is TIO relief, where yeah. there's there are infrastructural requirements of a PGA Tour event and any professional golf event, but oftentimes hit a shot offline and you're able to get a free drop, not experience as much of a consequence as maybe fans on social media. I would count myself in this camp would like to see curious for your perspective on TIO relief. Is it, do, are there solutions? Do you think it's a problem on tour? I would just love to get the PJ tours perspective on that subject. Well, I think you, you know, it's an important part of it, right? These tournaments run, a, they raise a lot of money for charity, you know, and, and um, we sell those venues and it's an important part of the formula of a successful PGA Tour event. Um, we're trying to get people close to the action, um, especially sometimes on the closing holes of an event. That's, it's important that all those structures are there. Um, not to mention that our own infrastructure to provide data for everything right now in the sport, whether it be gaming, whether it be our broadcasts, all there's things popping up all over the golf course. So when you go and play a golf course as the average player, you don't encounter all these things. And we certainly can't punish the players for ending up in an area where something is on their line of play. Uh, so we do, that's, I mentioned the advance official, the advance official works almost year round with an event, working with the proper placement of everything on the golf course. He's trying to strike a balance between the location of a structure, uh, from an entertainment standpoint, and then also from the design of the golf course and trying to protect the design features of the golf course. You don't want to have structures right up the right up against the 18th green where it's almost creating a backboard. And I think that's probably what you're getting at is, you know, uh, it, it's a it's a balance there. So we're always asking more room, more room. And unfortunately, some venues don't provide enough room for all of these things. So as upset as the home viewer may be getting, um, you know, it's within the rules of the game and um, they don't have to encounter all of these things when they play a golf course. It presents challenges, um, good and bad. So, you know, sometimes it does reward the player and, and if we've placed something wrong and, and it happens to player gets rewarded for that. You know, we're making notes of that and we'll make darn sure next year that same thing isn't located there. But it's it's a balance. We're always trying to provide an entertainment vehicle for all of you to see at home. And at the same time, you know, um, we've got to have the ability to entertain people on site and provide data for all those other folks. So. There's a lot there's a lot to balance. I know one thing I've seen at major championships in the past and maybe this has happened at PGA Tour venues is sometimes they'll have a designated drop area that's like a bad lie whether it's a little bit of fescue or something. It, 
is that something that the PGA Tour has considered, or are there any counterbalancing solutions to the backboarding issue, for example? Uh, we've always we have always um, shied away from drop zones or drop areas because, quite frankly, we just believe there's a rule in place that that keeps the ball in a more similar area to where where it was struck, you know, where it was lying. So we would rather operate off the TIO local rule rather than bring a player to the nearest drop zone and have them all playing from within there and creating divots in there and everything, every other possibility. Um, we just believe there's a rule in place and we all understand it and we have, we're very comfortable operating under it. I think it's more the home viewer that doesn't understand sometimes what we're doing. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's not always creating an easy up and down situation. Sometimes it creates a worse situation than the player would have been facing if that thing wasn't there. So, um, yeah, there's pluses and minuses. I think everyone just gets upset when they see a player somehow get rewarded for hitting a bad shot. And yeah. I get that. I get well, that. You're referencing with, with a lot of the infrastructure that's out on tour shot link towers for example are, are a big part of that and i'm curious does the pga tour what is pga tour setups relationship with data are you looking at uh certain scoring averages and hoping that you get a certain distribution of birdies and bogeys on particular holes based on how you've set it up are you evaluating a setup based on some of the data that you're getting back just curious what your relationship is with data and maybe how that's changed uh since you've been yeah. on the pga tour We've we've come a long way, and we're it's only going to get better. We're doing a deeper dive into the data all the time, and uh, you know that's one thing that we the PGA Tour has made a huge investment in in data through Shotlink, and Shotlink has been a huge help for us in our daily setup of the golf course and our planning. And um, you know I talked about our setup team. And their ability to take a deep dive into the data, looking at when the whole location is in this section of the green and this wind direction, they can look back at the data and they can see where the shot dispersion pattern was off of the tee. They can make adjustments based on all that data, thousands and thousands of shots that are, that are being struck. And it's almost getting to the point where I think in the future, we can actually select a, a golf course and, and almost have the ability to predict what the score is going to be just based on, you know, the computer will figure out that whole location with that wind and do it for each hole and almost predict what the average score is going to be and what, you know, what the uh, winning score might be, you know. It's really a neat tool in our toolbox, and it's just just in its infancy right now. We are we've come a long way, and we've got a lot of great people working in the background. The PGA Tour has not stopped with everything going on in professional golf right now. I can tell you, the folks at the PGA Tour are hard at work trying to figure out how we can be better and continue to distance ourselves from our competition, especially in that end of the business. We are um, getting stronger and stronger every day. 
Do you have a specific example of maybe how data changed the way you thought about something in with your job, right? Where you you thought for years, and I th- I feel like I, this happens to me all the time with golf data. Where oh, I thought this, but actually this was the case. It could be a, a whole location. It could be uh, you know, a way. It could be a variety of things. Obviously, I, I think probably where in in my day to day. Um, oftentimes we're talking about making changes to golf holes on certain courses. And our team now has the ability through all the shot link data and through all this technology that they've developed before we make the change to the golf hole. And if we're thinking of moving a bunker or shifting something or bringing the rough line in, they can take all of the shot dispersion data and overlay that and and make the changes to the hole and it will figure out and simulate what the balls that end up in the rough what the average score was and you can see ahead of time before you spend any money making those changes to a golf course are you really going to have the impact that you're looking for so you know the players championship is a great example tpc sawgrass we are constantly looking at that golf course how can we present a better challenge to that golf course and it's not just distance oftentimes it's shifting features slightly um changing angles you know constantly trying to make the player think out there so before we spend money on it we can on CAD designs, they can shift, change things, and calculate, is that worth it? Is it going to change the average score for the whole? With regards to making changes, especially, you know, architectural changes at a place, you know, with, say, Sawgrass, designed by one of the greatest architects of, of all time, um, when you're looking at that, are you guys looking at pure difficulty? Are, how do we get this average up? Or is more the goal to how do we create a wider range of outcomes, like where where we have more low scores and but also more high scores? Yeah, well, I think you hit on it. it we've never we love the fact that um, the range of champions at at TPC Sawgrass is really wide. You know, you have players short short hitters, medium and long. And um, it's never favored any one particular type of player. So that's why we personally love the course and we continue to tweak the place. Um, Pete Dye was was just an unbelievable architect who challenged you physically and mentally. And uh, it was important to us that if as we move forward there at TPC Sawgrass, it was important to us that we get player feedback from people who have played it in the past. And um, we've gotten a lot of feedback, especially from Davis, Davis Love, who is now involved in making future um, adjustments to Pete's design. He absolutely was a big fan of Pete, Pete's design. And um, he's very thoughtful in his own architecture. And uh, we thought he was the perfect guy to bring on board. So he has been really deeply invested in future adjustments to the golf course there and making sure that he is being true to Pete's thoughts on how to play that golf course. And um, and also Tiger has, has also had some, some input uh, th- with Davis. 
They've talked extensively about how the course used to play, and we value their opinion, obviously. Any any of the past champions who really want to see that golf course be the true challenge. Gary, I'm really glad you brought up TPC Sawgrass because I feel like one debate I've kind of had with people recently, what's the best time to play TPC Sawgrass? How does it play differently in May versus March? Really interested in your perspective on how it plays differently uh, in March than in its historical, at least where it used to be in May, and uh, what some of the differences are in setting up the course, firmness levels. Really curious for your perspective on how that uh, move to March has changed how TBC Sawgrass plays. Move move back to March. Move Joseph might to be March. too might be right. too young to remember the March days <laughs> before the May days. <laughs> Joe's a young one, huh? <laughs> um, I'll be honest with you. It, it uh, we we had the benefit of knowing how it would play in March. We had been playing it in May and were providing a very firm, fast golf course. It didn't quite have the color that it has. It didn't have the appeal visually, um, you know, because the Bermuda was still somewhat, you know, not coming fully out of dormancy. And um, I think that everyone felt that the golf course presents itself better in March, uh, just visually striking. Uh, the rough is certainly a, a challenge still. We have the ability to, it's all overseed, so we have the ability to to beef the rough up and it's thick and juicy. Um, it's just not going to play as firm and fast. So we know that the scoring is going to be good, and I think that so it's always produced somewhere in that 14 to 15 under par region somewhere in there so and and we're okay with that we think that at the end of the week we want to see some scoring it's all about the competition itself was it a compelling competition let's not get focused on how many under par wins the tournament and um that's something that I, I don't like is when people start placing you know they start saying something about a venue be they say oh they they shoot a you know twenty something under par there. It's all about the competition. What people remember in the end was the exciting finish, and was it a duel coming down the stretch? Was there a playoff, an exciting playoff? I don't think many people actually remember what the winning score was. So Have, I, we don't get hung up on that. I think the whole score thing's kind of silly. Um, if you look at how many player, you know, look when Tiger came out, nobody hit the ball over 300 yards. Now half the tour hits the ball over 300 yards. Um, I think the scoring competition, uh, the, the scoring conversation is crazy. It's like, it, you know, it, the, the quality of a golf course cannot be de determined by what, you know, par is relative. Have you guys ever talked about, like dramatically, I know you've done it in occasions where like TPC Craig Ranch went down in par one shot. Have you ever talked about going to like a par 68 for one week and just seeing how what the general reaction would be? I don't know that we've discussed doing that. Um, we There are times where we look at a par, say there's a par five. And when you look at the end of the week and the average for that hole is 4.0 or 4.1, that's really a par four for our players. You know, it, on the card, it's a par five. Um, so there have been times where we have, we've changed the par value on a hole. 
But when we do that, we want to make sure that the green is one that is receptive to a long club being hit to it so that we can truly call it a par four and have the players have it feel like it's a true par four. They understand hitting a longer club in where they get critical is when it's a green that was really designed to receive a wedge and where and they're hitting, you know, long clubs to it. I've I've done some research on this subject and and if you go back to the, when par was created in the 1910s, it was determined that a par 5 was a hole that is reached with th- three shots by an expert player. That would be the normal. And my question with that is like are there actually, you know, we just saw it with Pebble sopping wet Pebble guys hitting irons into 14, which has traditionally been one of the few real three-shot par f- fives on tour my question is is it i mean do par fives really even exist in the pro game today it's um it's there's not many there's not many that require three shots anymore let's let's be honest you know so um that's where sometimes our hole locations on that particular hole will be challenging knowing that they are going to be somewhere up there around the green flipping a wedge well the balance is going to be you're going to have a really difficult up and down to achieve a birdie there you know that should should mean something so but um yeah they just it's a function of the the game and how it's evolved and you're right there aren't many that they don't reach into anymore gary in terms of Sports leagues, PGA Tour, other sports leagues as well, modernizing. One hot topic is always pace of play, speeding the game up. Uh, you know, Major League Baseball recently implemented a pitch clock. You are uniquely positioned to uh, <laughs> dis- discuss some of the complications in implementing a shot clock in golf. It's something that gets thrown around a lot. Really curious for your perspective on the difficulties of implementing a solution like a shot clock. Uh, and, and kind of how the what the tour stance is on that right now. And and, and I'll I'll forgive you guys for the pop shots that you take at us once in a while about our lack of addressing pace of play. But um, honestly, it's, I it's, it takes a long. It's a big commitment to watch golf. Yeah, we we hear them. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I'm being honest with you guys. It's it's all about having the ability to spread the groups out, okay? It's spreading the tee time intervals out. And, and clubs across America would help the pace, their own pace of play by creating more space. Um, what happens is when the fields get large and we get 156 players in a field, we've got to have tee time intervals so close together. And then, as you just said, Par fives really are all reachable, right? So you can almost assure yourself that every par five is going to have a weight. So now you've got four weights occurring throughout the golf course. And with all of them starting so close to one another and knowing that these weights are occurring, how do you time anyone? You know, it's just you kind of lose your ability and, and the slower players can tend to hide in those situations. Uh, They don't stand out as much. When we get to situations where our fields are smaller um, and we can spread the tee times out, you see the results in the pace of play. The pace of play suddenly goes from north of five hours 
to suddenly now we're playing about four hours and 45 minutes, which for professional golf and everything they're playing for is acceptable. This is not this is not some round of golf that you're playing on a weekend with your buddies. These guys are playing for their lives. And, and we all know that. Um, we have a system in place that I f- firmly believe in uh, through the shot link system, and it tracks average shot time data on each player. We have moved to that system rather than, and, and yet we will still time groups if they fall out of position with the groups ahead of them. They all have a responsibility to stay in position with the group ahead of them. And, um, and we will warn groups and we will time groups. But the bigger thing is the slowest players on the PGA Tour are going to end up paying fines at the end of the year if they set themselves apart from the rest and they, and they don't, um, you know, I've always said to the slower players when, when they get a, what we call an AST infraction. So at the end of each event, there's an average time to hit a shot. The slowest, basically the slowest 5% ends up getting an AST infraction. If they get 10 during the course of the year, fines start to kick in and it starts to accumulate quickly. And um, we don't discuss that publicly with anyone, the amounts, but they're hefty amounts. And what it is, it's just encouraging people to play. We're looking like cars on a highway. We don't want people going 100 and we don't want people going 40. We're looking for everyone traveling right around 65, 70 miles per hour going down the highway. And if everyone's spaced the same, traffic flows nicely. Things are going to happen during a round of golf. We're going to have lost balls. We're going to have rulings. These are things that happen that don't happen at your club each week. And the average person doesn't understand. Like, why is it taking them five hours to play? Well, there's ruling calls. There's drive-backs to the tee. How often does someone go back to the tee at your club when you're playing? Or do you just throw one down in the fairway? Well, they, don't, they don't have a cart. They got a run back. <laughs> That's I re- right. So I remember the junior golf us. days. The junior golf and, and amateur golf days, the, the run back of shame. Well, you got to compose yourself after you sprint 300 yards and, and hit the next tee shot. <laughs> uh, it's not a good feeling. The, no, there's, uh, a lot of, there's a lot of components to pace of play but the biggest component is having the ability to space groups out and that's why we've always preached you know uh, although we're a membership organization we're looking to maximize starts at the same time uh just understanding that smaller fields will provide us the best opportunity to improve pace of play i guess you know where i where i'm gonna push back um, because obviously I think I'm on a, on, I have, I've very well documented my, my feelings here, but I, I, the thing that frustrates me the most is that playing slow is, is rewarded on the, on the PGA tour. You hear players talk about, I used to play fast. You, we heard Brooks Kepka talk about how he realized he was trying to play too fast. And that's what he did at, at Oak Hill. One of the changes he made from the masters to Oak Hill was I slowed down. I just took my time. I went to the bathroom when I didn't need to go to the bathroom. When you talk about the end consumer, that's tough to hear, but 
with the with regards to you know you have this system in place you can identify who the slow players are they're timed every shot's timed wouldn't str- wouldn't the most effective strategy be to to dock strokes not find because with the amount of money that's being played for now these fines are completely inconsequential to versus like a shot or two i i know if i if I save myself two shots when I'm playing well because I play slow, I'm going to make up $500,000. And that's going to pay for all of my fines, no matter what the subject. It, it just doesn't seem like all the the uh, considerations are aligned here with like the most the the only place to me that ever is going to dissuade a PGA Tour player from playing slow is saying we're taking away shots in this tournament that. That to me, like nobody wants to be penalized ever in a golf tournament. And that is the ultimate versus fines. Like if I play better because I play slow, they're going to pay for themselves. At, at some point, at some point, they're going to hurt, <laughs> hurt enough to change your mind. I promise you. Um, and, it, and it has happened. So okay. um, fines, fines do work, believe it or not. It, it, it bothers, even when you're, you're a person that makes a lot of money playing, when the fines escalate, it gets their attention. And, and it has changed behavior. Um, I can speak from experience that there are players who have changed their ways when the fines got to be a certain amount. But to your other point, the strokes, um, there's a huge inequity there, Okay. So you're a guy who is playing brutally slow and you miss the cut or you just make the cut and uh, you get hit with a one-stroke penalty. doesn't really harm you much. You're another guy who's played at a great pace the whole tournament, but now coming down the stretch, you're in contention and something happens to you. And you're on the clock, your group's on the clock, and you get you get a couple bad times, and, and all of a sudden we're hitting you with a one-stroke penalty. That one-stroke penalty could cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. If not, nowadays, could cost you a million dollars for that one shot if you end up losing by one. Where's the equity in that, you know? So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of why... I'll, I, we look, we won't hesitate to get to that one shot. And we have given the one shot penalty out. Okay. I, um, it's just, we believe that there's a big inequity there. And the way the system is designed to get to that point, you'd have to be a fool. I mean, you, you've been, your group's been warned. Okay. And then the next step is you don't make up time. And your group gets put on the clock, or you get put on the clock individually. And now you're being timed, and you go over your time. Now I've got to come out and tell you that I had you for a bad time. And I have to explain to you that the next time that happens, it's going to be a one-stroke penalty. So that's like three or four stages that we go through before that. And that's the way the system's designed by the players themselves. I guess, I guess like where I would, I, every other sport, what amazes me about professional athletes in general is the difference between Tom Brady and someone with first round top five pick measurables 
is the way that Tom Brady is able to quickly process coverages and make decisions under the gun under the highest pressure situations. To me, one of the things about professional golf is that when the pressure ratchets up, when it is the time to go win, I want to see players have to continue to make decisions, pull the trigger when they are in uncertain times. Tom Brady throwing a pass before he knows the receiver's open, you know, in, in making that play is like a player not really sure about the wind, having to trust his gut and pull the trigger, hit the shot under a stipulated time to me is a more compelling product. And obviously you can disagree here, but there's also a physical fitness aspect of this, right? If I have to climb the 18th hill at Riviera and I'm up and I hit the shortest tee shot and I have 40 seconds to play, I might be breathing a little bit harder. There is a there's a real like when you talk about a is golf a sport or is this really like just a, you know, we can wait and we can wait out wind until it dies down to hit the shot and wait two minutes because I know I'm in the last group and I'm not going to get popped for this this one time. Like to me, there seems to be like a, a, a little bit of a clash with pace of play and the idea of competition and playing an outdoor sport with like with levers that are pulled against you as a competitor. I, I agree with every point you're making there. I, I would love to see everyone again. Like I told you, our goal is to identify the slowest players, get them to understand that the numbers don't lie, that they are a slow player and that they need to change. And and that's, that's a big part of our job is to get them to understand that we're not looking to make them a fast player. I just want you to be an average speed player. That's all I'm asking of you. We want everyone playing about the same amount of time, you know? So I think to your point there is they get too cerebral and you're looking for them to be more reactionary and, and be athletes out there, make a decision and go with it. And I have the same frustrations as you at times because I love the product as well. And, that you know, I'm a fan as well as, you know, working out there. So yeah. I want to see it go quicker. We all do. But, um, you know, it's it's a balance. Every, it's like everything in life. There's a balance there. And we've got to get these guys to see the numbers and the numbers don't lie. And you can give all the excuses you want, but the numbers do not lie. You're, everyone's being treated the same. It's it's mechanized now. You can't tell me that it's a volunteer that you had that it was hitting the, the button a little late. It's now a fully automated system that is doing it. When someone hits a shot, it, it records right away. And the clock starts on the next person. And it's a very well thought out system that throws out all the bad data in four or five different categories. So it's it's holding everyone to the same uh, same measurements. All right, let's let's get out of here with a few fun questions. Now <laughs> yeah, that... let's ask some good ones here. Come on, you're putting a lot of heat on me here. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to be like Bryson with uh, Ant Hill. You know, here, give me a couple so... layups, will you? <laughs> um, what's your What's your favorite golf course to go to to set up? Like, what What's the place that you find the is to be for you and your job where you nerd out and have the most fun doing a a tournament at? Um, 
we just came from it. I hate to say it. I mean, <laughs> Pebble Beach, you can't beat it. I mean, it's just so beautiful. Um, it can be such a great golf course uh, if it's the right time and the conditions are right. It can be just an outstanding golf course. And it has been. You know, I hate to say it. People complain about where we are in the schedule. Well, that we've had like stretches of four or five years with perfect conditions out there. It's just unfortunate. You know, you're going to get a couple now and then with this Pineapple Express, El Nino. And it, the, the atmospheric river, the atmospheric God, river comes, came into the mainstream. It comes with it, you know? It's like I said, it's the price of being in paradise. It's, But that's my... I love being at Pebble Beach. Um, I love I love working the Masters Tournament. I mean, such a gorgeous place. Um, great people. Everything about the event. Um, I, I really cherish going to the Open Championship and the tradition of the Open. Um yeah, it's all those iconic venues. Very, very blessed to do what I do. Is there a golf course that you think that hasn't been on the PGA Tour, but maybe you're like, wow, I would love to see that be a PGA Tour venue and might have the space to accommodate some of the infrastructure? Any in oh, Gary Young's oh. dream <laughs> bucket list, add this to the PGA Tour ro- uh, rotation. Uh, I don't know that. I don't know. I've played some great courses over in Ireland that just I loved. I mean... I don't know if you guys have ever played Old Head in Kinsale. Mm-hmm. If you if you haven't, you should put that on your bucket list. Um, you know, there's great courses over there. Waterville, Bally Bunyan. Um, I mean, gosh, Scotland's littered with courses I'd love to see us play and see how the guys could do. And um, who knows? Who knows what the future brings, you know, as, as we – as we, there's a lot of talk about international play in the future, and um, maybe that will give us the opportunity to go to some of these great, great, iconic venues and um, around the world. So, yeah, I don't have any one that jumps out. Well, that's at a great me, answer. Is, uh, is your least favorite thing to do preferred lies? Is that your least favorite part of the job when you got to institute preferred lies? <laughs> My, my my least favorite part of the job is interviews, but uh, <laughs> prefer, preferred lies. Um, it's a necessary evil for professional golf. Um, we have to have certain standards, and uh, the ability to to improve your lie within a club length when the golf course reaches a point of saturation like we had last week it allows us to continue to play golf right but it also can lead to some scenarios where a player can gain a significant advantage so i understand why uh you know some of the major championships are reluctant to ever put preferred lies into play um but sometimes you got to make sure that you're going back out and onto a golf course that you can continue play on. So there's a balance there. All right. Last question. Um, I promise. <laughs> All right. You're off a of red eye. You know, we can't, we can't ask anymore. Um, okay. What is, what is the, when you think back to like one ruling, like it's the, the ruling that pops in your head 
the most often, what is it in the history oh, of your career? Like, oh. there's got to be one that just like jumps to mind every time. Well, probably one of the most painful ones was um, with Webb Simpson, and this was at the Zurich Classic of New Orleans, and Webb was, I think at the time he was leading by one shot. And I got called to the green on, I want to say it was hole 15? Yeah, 15. And he had put his putter down behind the ball and it the, the ball moved. But he had put his putter down, you know, maybe in half an inch to an inch behind the ball. And it wasn't like he put it down firm the way he was describing it to me. But at that time, the weight of the evidence went against the player. His feet were in the position, in the address position. Everything was saying that he was taking his address to make the stroke. And um, it led to him being penalized. And he ended up losing the tournament. And... um, Shortly after that, the rule ended up changing, thankfully, when accidental movement occurs on the putting green. And um, thank God that has happened. And we've avoided a lot of silly penalties through the years where I think it was a situation where the ball just hadn't quite settled. You know, it was maybe it was on the edge of a spike mark or something or a little um, spike imprint. And it ended up falling, and it just did it happened to do it while the guy's putter was behind the ball. You hated that. That was really hard. Um, and then uh, I had one ruling over at the President's Cup years ago in Korea that we ended up getting wrong as a committee. I, I, I wasn't sure, and I put it out to the committee. And we had some of the best rules minds in the entire world there on site. And it was one of these real obscure ones. Um, We had the one ball rule in effect. And Phil Mickelson had changed his ball without announcing it to anyone. And um, it was four ball match play. And I told him that I believed he was disqualified from the hole, but it didn't disqualify his partner. And uh, I put it out over the radio. And long story short, in the end, we ended up getting it wrong. And it affected the match. And um, Easiest guy to deal with in that situation, too. It was just a really (laughs) weird, weird moment. And to keep my head straight for the rest of the match, knowing that we had made this blunder and I was a big part of it. And, um, you know, in the end... In the end, the match ended up being tied. So thank goodness it didn't cost anyone, you know, big. I feel like that's like I grew up caddying. And when you're caddying in a club championship match and you give like a bad read and that's <laughs> all you can think about, like the next like, <laughs> like you're, you, they ask you to read another putt and you're like, uh, like you just like don't even want to step up and read the putt because you just, you know, you just butchered the last read. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good good analogy right there. Yeah. Um, Gary, where where will we see you next? What's uh and uh thank you obviously for the time uh, coming off of a long week here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually headed to the Mexico Open at Vedanta and then the Players Championship uh following that. So, I've got a little bit of a break in my schedule right now, which is good. I need a little little time off. 
Uh-huh. Go do something different for a few days and uh, get away from golf. That's a, it's a good time to be in North Florida too. Good time of yes. year to have a little time off. I'm I'm headed to Maine. Oh wow! <laughs> I, I go snowmobiling up in Maine, so I just kind of get away wow. from it. I'm here in Massachusetts, so I, I'll look forward to a little break for a few days, re regroup, and then come back. Come back at it. All right. Thanks so much, Gary, and uh, look forward to seeing you at uh, at a tournament sometime soon. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. A lot of fun. Thanks, Gary. All right. Thanks to Gary Young. Uh, that was he. He was more than generous with his time, and he was coming off a red eye. That was a valiant effort um, as he fended off some of our questions and, and concerns about pace of play. Joseph, um, do you have a recommendation for everybody? I do, Andy, and I'm curious if you've watched this. So I'm going the golf route, actually, this week. And one of my favorite things to do is watch old golf tournaments on YouTube. Generally, right. I watch old editions of the Masters. A lot of 2005 to 2018, 19, a lot of, in that range I like to go back and watch. But recently, I stumbled upon, I didn't realize the 2016 Open Championship at Royal Troon is on YouTube. Went back and watched that, the epic duel between Phil Mickelson and Henrik Stenson, all-time golf tournament. It is a delightful watch, and the added bonus is that the Open Championship this year is at Royal Troon, where it was in 2016. So helps you get prepped for the upcoming Open Championship, and you get to relive an all-time, all-time duel between two excellent ball strikers. So it was really fun to go back and rewatch that. Would highly recommend it. Andy, have you watched that tournament since 2016? I have not. Um, I remember it vividly. I remember where I watched it. I was at I was in Los Angeles. I remember just like I was uh, you know, waking up at weird hours West Coast and and I just like vividly remember watching that um golf tournament. Epic shots. Um God, crazy. that was a duel. I'm going to go back and watch that. This is a good recommendation. I have a recommendation on YouTube as well. Look All right. At Two YouTube recommendations. I am. I would say that I'm not like a huge Bryson DeChambeau fan. <laughs> that being said, I stumbled across his YouTube page recently and I watched the Sergio Garcia Bryson DeChambeau one club nine hole match. Awesome. It was so Awesome. And I think it was just like an amazing thing to watch Sergio do as somebody who has watched basically Sergio Garcia's entire career to watch him play nine holes with a five iron. They putt with a putter. Putt with a putter, but he used a five iron. He was just, he hit some just extraordinary shots and it makes you just like long for a little bit tougher equipment so that you could see guys have to hit shots again because he was amazing in this. Like, and I think Bryson, like by the end of it, Bryson, I think got like punched in the face right at the start. He was, this is not the type of golf that Bryson plays like shot making. It's very, you know, this, it blasted up there, hit a wedge, you know, and this is a way different golf or golf with one club. Bryson uses seven iron. But by the end of it, Bryson was hitting some really cool shots. I thought it was an amazing YouTube video. Like, honestly, like one of the best, maybe the best golf YouTube video I've ever watched is this one club match between Bryson DeChambeau 
and uh, Sergio Garcia. Awesome golf, awesome golf shots. It's really like if you're into golf, that's what you want to see um, from a YouTube video. I've watched it. I believe it. Is it at Austin Golf Club, Andy? Uh, no, it's at, um, it's at Spanish Oaks. Okay, okay, that's right. Yeah, I've watched it. It's pretty short. I want to say it's like an hour and a half or maybe not even that long. It's not even. I think yeah. it's like 45 minutes. Yeah, it's like you get to really see some cool shots. Sergio's working the ball both ways. Bryson's like hitting a seven iron over trees from like a thing. Yeah, he flopped it, flopped it, flopped a seven iron like 60 yards over a big tree and stopped on a dime. I mean, incredible, some incredible shots. Yep, yep, it's a good watch. Like, I like that, Andy. Legitimately, some of the best golf shots I've seen hit in a long time from Sergio. I'm with you. All right. That does it for this show. Um, big thanks to Matt Rusis for producing and editing this podcast. As a reminder, we got a huge week in Club TFE. If you're not a member of Club TFE, maybe check it out. But it's Riviera week. I know Garrett is going to get a Riviera profile up sometime this week on the golf course. Um, I did a little one thing about every hole at Riviera that'll be up early this week. Uh, but yeah, if you if you don't yet, Sign up for Club TFE. It is $120 for the year. Uh, we also just announced our summer member guest. That is at an awesome golf course on Long Island. But um, yeah, and, and you can get access to that if, uh, if you're a member. So th- big thanks. Uh, for more information on Club TFE, go to thefriedag.com slash membership, um, and you can see all the, all the benefits you get there. But big thanks to Joseph for coming on, and we will be back later this week with a new episode of the Friday Podcast.